I used to go to the bookshops and, and I'd go in and I'd, I'd flip to the back of books and see how, how old people were. And if they were younger than me, I would get so annoyed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I knew I'd never stop. Uh, I knew I'd never stop writing. I just didn't know that um, if, it, if it would ever work out. It's worked out quite well for Colin McCann, a writer whose books have been read and honored all over the world. This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Nishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years, when that success was by no means guaranteed, the Before the Cheering Started years. Colin McCann was born and bred in Ireland. He's lived in the United States since his early 20s, and he's often cited a bike trip that he took across the States as a young man as the inspiration for much of his storytelling. He's a gifted writer, marrying a penchant for storytelling with the journalism that he learned both at work and at home growing up in Dublin. Colm, can you recall the first time back in Ireland when you thought, wait, being a writer, that, that's a thing. I, I, I could maybe do that. Well, I grew up in a, in a household where the music was the sound of the typewriter. My father was a, a journalist and he was outside in the in, in the writing shed and um, he was writing books about um, soccer. Uh, he had been a professional soccer player. So um, he would bring the pages in for me to, to uh, read. He actually typed on one of those Kerouacian rolls of, uh, of, of newspaper uh, paper. And, and, and sometimes he'd bring in two, three feet of, um, of new scenes and I would read them at night. And, and, and so I became part of the, the editorial team for a series of seven books about um, a soccer player by the name of Georgie Good. Uh, you know, books called like The Golden Goal and Goals for Glory and We Are the Champions. And these books then were read uh, by a teacher that I had in school allowed to the class uh, a year or so later when I, I think I was nine or ten years old. And I remember distinctly at the end of Goals for Glory, which was the first book in the series, Georgie Good scored a goal at the in the very last chapter and the the young fellow in front of me, Christopher Howlett, um, jumped up on the desk and started um, like punching the air um, with delight. And I remember thinking, that's very odd. All of that came from my father's head. And now here we are in a classroom. And that's that's what writing is. And that's maybe what writing can do. And, 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 and I was curiously taken by it. I, I, I wanted at that stage, I, I knew fairly well that I wanted to be a journalist at the very least. Just because of his example? Because of his example, um, there were lots of journalists called to that. My, my fa- father um, sort, sort of um, was well known for um, encouraging writers. Um, he was a features editor of a paper called The Evening Press. Um, and, you know, a lot of the journalists would, would call around to the house looking for, you know, um, a few bob generally to go drinking, in fact, um, in, in advance from, from, from my father. It was a hard-drinking, hard-living uh, profession uh, in Dublin. In certain ways, it's, it still is. It's not quite the same. But, um, you know, you could almost hear them after my father would give them money, you could almost hear the, the taxi sloshing away down the street. <laughs> um, and I would go into the printing presses sometimes with him and, 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 and watch. And so by the age of uh, 12, I was actually doing reporting um, already on um, in local uh, local matches. I'd cycle around on my bike around the par- suburbs of Dublin 
and go to various matches and report on them. And people would look at me and say, who's this little snot nose who's coming around on his bicycle writing for the, um, for, for, which, which essentially was uh, a national newspaper uh, at the time. And so I learned the craft of deadlines and so on at a fairly uh, early age. And when I told him officially um, that I wanted to be a journalist, that probably at the age of 15 or so, he told me not to be, which of course, uh, from a father means do come on, right. uh, do it. And I did. Um, and and uh, I sort of never, uh, never looked back, I suppose. I, I mean, I still consider myself very much to be um, a journalist, maybe uh, a journalist who, who writes fiction as well, or, um, but, but, but very much in the, in, in the mold of, of someone who reveres the art of journalism. Do you recall uh, when you were going to cover those soccer matches as a 12-year-old, were you interviewing players as well or just watching the match and then writing about it? I was watching the match and then writing about it, but I'd have to, uh, I'd have to talk with the, with, with the managers afterwards. And they got used to me in, in, in the end. And, and, you know, sometimes I did some, some, some good reports or sometimes they tell me that I got the goal scorer wrong or something like that. But, um, it, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a, a great way to, 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 to learn the profession. I'd, I'd phone in the copy. Uh, I'd go home, write it up, phone in the copy, and, and, and then um, I'd see it in the newspaper the, the, the next day. And what reaction did you get from these managers as they're being interviewed by a 12-year-old kid? Like, when are you going to grow up? <laughs> I mean, um, and, but in the end, they, 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 they knew that I was quite serious about it. And, 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 and sometimes they would even, you know, they, they, they'd call me over and, 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 and they'd explain certain things. And I was only writing about, uh, about 150, 200 words per, per match. Uh, right. But sometimes I'd do three or four matches on a, on a Sunday. Um, and of course, you know, I came from a, a football soccer uh, background. Um, as I said, my father had been a professional player and I played uh, myself as well. But um, I, I really gravitated more towards the writing about it than I did uh, playing about it in the end. Now, uh, your native country has one or two or a thousand uh, pretty well-known writers. Does the tradition of the writers that have been created in Ireland uh, is that something that you're aware of as you're growing up uh, in that household? Or is that something that only kind of dawns upon you later on? Um, I, I, I'm not sure, to tell you the truth, because I was, I mean, I was surrounded by books. Um, and uh, my father wrote not only that series, but wrote about Irish theater, about the Irish art scene. Um, and, um, you know, and I would meet many writers um, uh, at, at the time. But I wasn't aware of, say, Joyce, for instance. When I was growing up in, in, in Dublin, there wasn't as much of the Joyce business um, as there is now. I mean, everywhere you go now in Dublin, you come upon a, a Joyce poster, a reference, a walk, a, 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 you know, a statue. But um, when I was growing up, that wasn't, that, that wasn't quite the same. But there was a reverence for the story and there was a reverence for the storyteller. Um, and one of the people who I, I was very close to was a great Irish writer by the name of Benedict Kiley. Now, Ben Kiley, uh, who wrote Prox Opera, Prox Opera, Nothing Happens in Carmen Cross, and several really great Irish novels, was also a journalist. And, um, you know, and, and, and I met him again through my father. But, but at the age of 15 or 16, I was reading some of his short stories and learning that uh, there was a new way. Uh, of talking and creating 
and um, and Ben was adored in uh, in Irish uh, literary circles. Um, mostly, you know, you'd find him, you know, in the pubs with the likes of Brendan Behan uh, or in in earlier years, or Patrick Kavanagh, or you know, people like that, um, and. They, they could spin out these incredibly complex stories and involving songs and poetry and all sorts of things. It really was, um, it, was a, it, it was an eye-opener for me. You once told me that you were actually more affected as a young, young man growing up in Ireland by the Beats, the American writers, than you were so much the Irish writers. How did that happen? At that stage, yeah. I mean, at that stage, you know, uh, Irish writing was there, and it was, uh, and, and 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 it was Irish writing. But there was this other whole universe uh, that was available to me um, through Kerouac and Ginsburg and Burroughs and Ferlinghetti. Uh, again, it was my father who had brought these books home from from uh, tours that he had done um, in in the states, and that was really the thing that ballooned my soul. Uh, at the time, yes, I was. I, I could see what was happening in Irish writing around me, but this whole mythical landscape, the Kerouac landscape, uh, which is always a good landscape for a for for, for a young young writer, um, I've never gone back to it. Uh, to be honest with you, because I'm scared that I I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like it as much now, and I loved it so much at the at at, at the time. It was the thing that sort of propelled me uh, eventually to go to. Uh, the United States, the sort of mythical uh, Kerouac uh, America, the, and and I had all the all the books and chap books and poetry books and Tokyo Montana Express and Bukowski and all of these things that that were going on, um, and they were the things that sort of uh, fed my soul. They were the atoms, I suppose, of my uh, literary experience at that time. Hmm. Before you get to America, you're growing up in Ireland. Uh, during the during the troubles in Northern Ireland, yeah. and I know I've read that you had uh, family up in the north, and you'd spend summer up there. Um, right. Is there a, a way you can describe what effect that situation had on your growing up years, and even did it have any effect on you in terms of writing? Yeah, it had an enormous uh, effect on me. You know, I, I would travel with my mother. My mother was from Derry. We would get on a bus in Dublin. And we would go up north and then suddenly we'd be stopped on the border um, and suddenly things would change. The post boxes would go from green to red and I would have questions about that. And the roads got bigger and the accents changed and then soldiers got on. And I was wondering, you know, why, why, why were we you know, asked to get off the bus and why were they checking in my mum's uh, handbag and, uh, you know, what was going on? And then I went up and, and, and spent my summers on a farm. Uh, and that was wonderful for me because I ran around and was completely free. And yet lurking in the background was always this talk of like, like who was Protestant, who was Catholic, who was loyalist, who was Republican. And I, I you know, I was in the, 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 the shadows uh, of what was a war. And I had all sorts of questions um, about it. And, um, you know, not all uh, people who grew up in Dublin at the same time as me had the, the, the same interest in Northern Ireland. In some, some ways, it was like another universe far, far away. But for me, uh, it, um, it, it, it was incredibly important uh, to me. And when things happened, like the Miami show band disaster, um, uh, when, 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 when this, this show band, the music band was, was killed uh, at the side of the road in 74, 75, I think it was. Um, it really rocked my, my world. And later then in, in the 1980s, when I was 16, 
you know, watching the hunger strikes unfurl and, 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 and things like that. Um, it confused me. And guess what? It still confuses me. Mm. Um, and, 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 and I think that's okay. Um, to, to acknowledge that, 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 that these things are, are very difficult. But later I would use that experience in a book called Everything in This Country Must. I also use it in, in, in a book called Transatlantic and, and in certain ways in my mo most recent novel, A Paragon, which is you know, about Israel and Palestine, I use so much of my Irish background uh, to so sort of help myself inform what, will, what the feeling was there, what the texture was there. So how does the conversation go with your parents when you finally decide you want to go to America? How old were you and how much time did you need to lead up to it to have the sit down with them? Uh, they were very good about it. Uh, I mean, the first time I went, uh, I was uh, 18 and I just went for a summer and I came to work for Universal Press Syndicate. Um, I remember coming to New York, oh my word, like, you know, very young, very naive, never seen a, a, a really big town before. Uh, and walking down Avenue of the Americas, uh, which is where the Time, time Life building was, and um, like l literally lying down on the ground and looking upwards <laughs> and seeing this, 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 this uh, you know, this huge building and thinking, where am I and what is this? Uh, I eventually got myself a little uh, flat out in, 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 in Brooklyn. Now, I was the sandwich boy. I was the, I was the runner, the, the delivery boy for um, a syndicated newspaper called Streets. Um, but eventually, uh, after a couple of weeks, they allowed me to start writing and I, and I did a few writing jobs for them. Uh, so that was my first time a summer in, 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 in New York. But the time I really left, I came here to um, when I was 21 to write a novel. And with the folks, they were like, yeah, go, you know. And uh, I, I was sure that I, I, I would be coming back. I wasn't leaving. A lot of people my age were leaving because they couldn't find jobs. Things in Dublin were rough at the time, 1986. Uh, you know, uh, there was a big heroin epidemic. There was all sorts of things going on. But for me, I was going out of curiosity. I was going to see if I could, you know, uh, write a novel and, you know, do that sort of Kerouac, um, to do that sort of Kerouac thing. And I went to Cape Cod, bought myself a typewriter and failed miserably. <laughs> How did you fail? Well, I wrote uh, and I didn't write very much um and i didn't write very well and the a key on the typewriter didn't work nor did the e key uh, work very well and at the end of the summer uh, when i looked at what i had written i sort of said to myself you don't know what you're doing um and i also said to myself i kind of knew that i didn't know the world um i i could string some sentences together yeah i'd done a lot of journalism at that stage but um i i, I was um I was well aware that 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 I didn't know what it was that I could write about, and um, so I got a group, a whole group of Irish people together, and we were in this cottage in in, in Hyannis, and and I said, we were all a little bit overserved, if you know what I mean, and I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to buy a big bus, and we're all going to travel together across country, and everyone was like, yes, let's do it, and then the next day they'd be like, oh, I got to go back to Dublin, I got to do this, I'm, you know, my mother won't let me do that, and. So I said, okay, we'll buy a van. And then, uh, and then eventually everyone fell away from that. And I ended up taking a bicycle uh, across the United States for the next, uh, for the best part of the next two years, a year and a half, uh, did about 12,000 kilometers, 8,000 miles. 
um, starting in uh, the Northeast, went all the way down to Florida, across to New Orleans, uh, into Texas, into Mexico, back up through New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, eventually uh, finishing uh, a, a completely changed person, I think, uh, going across the Golden Gate Bridge um, in, uh, in 19, late 1987. Where, where do you think, I'll use the word courage, where do you think the courage, you get the courage to do that? You set out in a country you don't know on a bicycle. Uh, you don't, I would imagine the first night, or do you know where you're going to be staying? Or is it all kind of a crapshoot at that point? I had no idea where I was going to be staying. In fact, for a year and a half, I, I had no idea. I traveled with a friend for a while, and, and then she came with me all the way to New Orleans. And, and, uh, and then uh, she stayed in, in, in New Orleans, and I went on on my own. And basically every night uh, I um, would find a place to sleep. I'd meet some people asleep in their backyard. Sometimes people would invite me into their houses or I'd be in a campground or I'd sleep by a river. And, um, and, and, and there were times I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. All my friends have got proper jobs and, you know, and, 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 and I've just given everything up uh, to go on this sort of uh, wild adventure. And there were times I got very upset and, and, and lonely. But there were other times when I realized that I was, I was learning stories left, right and center. And I was really open to the experience. And I didn't think of it as courage at, that, at, at, at that stage. I just thought of it as normal. I was just curious. And I was really hungry for experience. I wanted to live my life out loud. Um, and um, it, was a, it was a good way to do it. And also, being on a bicycle, I, I wasn't threatening to anyone. It wasn't as if I could like run off with their jewelry or anything like that. And, um, and and there was something there was something in the Amer American spirit when they would look at you and say, um, "What are you doing?" I say, "Cycling cross country." So I wish I could do that, hmm. or I wish I had done that. And I, I always say to young people now um, that they all should do something, at least one thing that doesn't compute um, in the vast scheme scheme of things. Do take at least one big journey, uh, and 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 uh, you know risk yourself uh, in certain ways. Could I do it today? I mean, it's different. I mean, um, you know, I had certain things uh, happen to me. I, I got run off the road and, you know, and, and, but in general, I found a really open and beautiful uh, and, and generous and kind country. And I think about it now, but I mean, I wonder what would happen if I got on that bike again and went down to certain parts of the country? Would, how, change would i be how changed would the would would would, would the country be you, you can never really know i mean ultimately you can never really know but i have a funny feeling that it still is the same place despite everything that we perceive about the way this country has changed and shifted i think that inherently uh, people you know there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of certainty around political ideas that, but once you get past that and once you get underneath that, I'm quite sure that there might be um, that original country, that original sort of um, idealism uh, still lurking there somewhere. Part of your experience in the bike tour around the country, I understand, was in Texas uh, working for a yeah. time. Uh, was that part of that same trip? And, yeah. and what was that job and how did that come about? Well, you know, I'd go to these churches like I, 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 
I figured out the the, the best day for eating was uh, was Sunday, because um, <laughs> you'd go to the the best church that you could find, and you'd go in, and then they'd in, inevitably uh, you know invite you uh, out to the barbecue afterwards. And um, so one Sunday I'm in this place called uh, Brenham, Texas, or it's actually Independence, Texas, tiny little town, and um, I go into the church and there's this group of kids at the back and they all look pretty tough and rough and I'm very interested in, in, in that. I'm always sort of attracted to the to the edges. And then I started talking to them afterwards and then the 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 um uh, these people came up who said they were they have they were running a wilderness program uh for uh for, for, for young people and did I want to work? I worked for a couple of weeks, uh and then when I finished the trip, my old bicycle trip, when I finished in San Francisco, I went back there and worked for uh another year and a half that was an extraordinary experience too uh working with kids who were out of juvie uh, you know and had been in prison already and came from broken families and um they were uh, an, an extraordinary crew again i was like uh, like dipping my feet into the act and the art of stories and storytelling all the time by the way still trying to write and still failing miserably when I got off the bicycle, I went down to work on this on, on this farm, this wilderness area with these kids, uh, and I wrote two books. This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. Our guest is the award-winning writer, Colin McCann. So he's biked across America, worked with kids in Texas, gathering stories and writing, and still unpublished. The success that would eventually come was nowhere close to being on the horizon. I wrote two books, um, and uh, both of them, neither of them uh, got published, and neither of them ever will uh, get published. <laughs> but um, I sent them off, and every day I'd check the mailbox, and I'd get back these rejection slips. And I realize now that I was writing myself out of, uh, out of the work. They were very much uh, young, ma young man's novels. One was about a guy who was a go-figure on a bicycle going cross-country. Uh, mm -hmm. And another one was about, uh, um, you know, a, a wilderness program. Uh, and, and, and so I was writing about myself. And then I realized um, largely, and I've spent the rest of my life not really writing anything that's directly related or seems to be at least directly related uh, to my experience. But because I learned so much about um, other people um, and, and, and I find the world in other people. And I think it was that bicycle journey. Uh, and then working with those kids that taught me the value of sitting down and listening and listening to others and then inhabiting the stories of others, which is kind of did, what I do now. Didn't uh, you use those rejection letters as uh, yeah. kind of some kind of interior decorating? Yeah, I wallpapered the bathroom. <laughs> I have slips from from Random House. I have slips from... You know where I'm now published. I've slips from 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 uh, famous now famous agents uh, saying, and and you know I got a, a little, I got some good rejections if you can get a good rejection, you know, um, and um, you know, in fact, uh, you know, a couple of years later, one of these books almost got me a publisher, and I went to New York, and instead of getting a publisher, I met my wife. So um, yeah, and and and. Um, uh, and then we embarked on another uh, on another journey. I was at the University of Texas then at that stage, and we embarked on another journey uh, and went to live in Japan for uh, for her to learn Japanese uh, for uh, another two years. So that was part of our our our, 
our whole journey. It was there that I first got my first news about getting um, get, get, getting my stories published. After Japan, when the book came out, I, I remember this distinctly. I went to the publishing house in London. So I was getting, they were getting published in London. Uh, it's a book called Fish in the Slow Black River. And um, I walked around the publishing house thinking, and I thought I was going to go there and they're all going to celebrate me. And, you know, it was going to be fantastic and there'll be a big party. And nobody gave a company <laughs> bit. And I walked and walked around until down at the far end of the corridor, this was in a publishing company called Weidenfeld and Nicholson, this like stunning, elegant uh, lady with sort of long red hair uh, walked out of the office. And then she was introduced to me by an editor who was there. And it was Edna O'Brien. And Edna O'Brien had a reading that night and she invited me to come to be the warm-up act for her reading uh, and, and it was, and that was a stunning introduction to the world of literature. It was the, the first reading I'd ever done. I went on way too long, <laughs> just, but it was, it was a, one of those great things. So Edna, in a certain way, gave me one of my first starts in literature. When you're getting the rejection letters, or even before then, as you're on the bike trip, um, but when you start getting the letters saying, thanks, no thanks, uh, did you ever believe them? Did you ever come close to stopping and just kind of, you know what, it's not going to work out. Let me try something else. Here's what I said. I do remember the feeling. I mean, I remember being sort of overwhelmed at a certain stage. I, I said, okay, to hell with this. I'm going to stop sending this out, uh, but I'm never going to stop writing. I knew that I was never going to stop writing. I thought, oh, well, I'll never get published. Uh, and, um, you know, now, now that I think about it, I was still so very young. I was 25, 26, 27. Um, and, 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 you know, I thought that was way too old. And I used to go to the bookshops and, and I'd go in and I'd, I'd flip to the back of books and see how, how old people were. And if they were younger than me, I would get so annoyed. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, um, I knew I'd never stop. Uh, I knew I'd never stop writing. I just didn't know that, um, if it, if it would ever work out. Um, and it was a beautiful thing to hold that, 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 that first book. And you don't know what it is that's going to, going to happen after that. The second book is always the harder one to, to actually uh, finish uh, and write. Um, I always find, um, although every every book becomes a, be, becomes a hard a hard book. But I was so naive about the publishing industry at the, at that stage. But I was, and I, I also tr have to say, I truly feel that I was very lucky. What happened was this: I was at the University of Texas. I wrote a short story. I liked the short story. I gave it to the local literary magazine, uh, Analecta, uh, and uh, they said they were going to publish it. But I liked this story enough. I was like, damn, I shouldn't have done this. I should have sent it out to you know the big magazines and whatever. Uh, and I, I went back to them and said, no, I, I want to, uh, you know, just, um, you know, I want to try and sell this story. And they said, well, OK, but they were upset. And I said, OK, just go ahead and publish it. They did, and somehow that little journal uh, was got into the hands of a Scottish uh, literary agent who uh, got in touch with me, and within two weeks uh, of, of, of her reading it, uh, or he, him reading it and, and his wife reading it, um, 
we uh, I had a I had a contract for for a collection of short stories. Giles Gordon um, uh, was the was the agent at the time. So amazing. And Maggie McKernan uh, was the editor who was his wife. You put it out there into the world. You never know what window of opportunity it's going to open up. That's the thing. I mean, it's got it's got to be out there. It's got to be working for you. And I do believe that literature will eventually always find its place. If, if it's good enough, um, it will always find its correct um, place. I know that's hard for people to, to hear when when right now it's very difficult to get to, to for anyone to get published. But I think you have to believe in it. And, and you know, the, the famous the famous Beckett quote is always going on in my head, you know, no matter try again, fail again, fail better. Hmm. Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good mantra to live by. Can you tell me about your friendship with Frank McCourt, another pretty fair writer from Ireland, a great New York story, a great New York storyteller, and also comparing the Ireland that you grew up with and the Ireland that he grew up in? Yeah, well, you know, um, I love... Frank McCourt and, 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 and I still miss him to the, this very day. Just a couple of days ago, I was walking through Manhattan and I, I met Ellen, his wife, and we were reminiscing a little about the, uh, about the days when we would all hang out together. Um, Frank was uh, amazing. Frank was a great storyteller. Uh, you know, I envied him what he could do. He envied me what I could do. He wrote nonfiction. I wrote fiction. And, 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 but he would say things like, McCann? Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> uh, when he died, uh, I was very upset. And, and, uh, uh, but uh, one of the things that, that, that he wrote down, he wasn't able to speak much anymore. And I wrote down in, in, in a, um, on a big poster board, actually, to him when he was in the hospice, you know, where and when are you going to go dancing and drinking now? And he, he replied, every Sabbath. And next mm -hmm. Sabbath, in other words, next, next, you know, next, when I die, Next Sabbath, um, I will be upstairs. I'll be dancing upstairs with the great JC and the Mary M and the 12 hot boys. And in the morning, all will be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's pure Frank. In the morning, all will be forgiven. Uh, you know, he wrote about Limerick. Um, I've become fond of, uh, of Limerick now. And his childhood was quite similar to my father's childhood. So it wasn't so distant uh, to me. My father had grown up very poor um, in Dublin. So... Um, I grew up middle class and suburban, but so my my upbringing was very different to Frank's, but but not not uh, it wasn't too far from the experience that I kind of knew. You once joked to me years ago that uh, Frank, you had the good Ireland for a writer to grow up with me. What did, you know? What did I have to write about? I grew up in a happy middle class uh, household. Exactly. I mean, that's that, not fair that, for a writer. I know. Uh, I mean, Frank got the good stuff, didn't he? He got the. I had to go out and invent it. I had to get on a bicycle and uh, tear away after. I mean, that's not that that that's not true, really. But uh, you know, the writer finds his or her um, proper space. Uh, Frank found his voice, um, and um, he knew where where it was going to operate, um, and he was so much fun to be around because he liked life. He liked people. Um, and, and, and he was going to tell the truth, uh, and he, he, and he told it very, very well. Wasn't it your, was it your wife that gave you the advice that you could kind of essentially write outside yourself? Yeah. Uh, or words to that effect. And, yeah. and when, when was that? And, and how did you kind of take that advice? Very early on, I took it really badly. Um, you know, um, she sort of pointed out to me that I was like, 
writing the same old stuff uh, more or less all the time. Uh, and, um, you know, I was using the same phrases and, 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 and I was, you know, I, was using, I had the same darling sentences and said, why don't you, you know, write outside of the Irish experience? Why don't you? And at, at first I was, I, I balked at it. Um, but in the end, she was um, entirely correct. Her, her gut instinct was something that led me uh, into, you know, really sort of um, uh, spreading my wings and, um, you know, I, I feel very lucky to have had a career of what, and I don't even know how many books now, 10, 12, um, that um, sort of go in lots of different directions. So if I feel like I've, I've lived a number of, um, of different lives. And in those books, beautiful books like Transatlantic uh, and others that have been translated into so many different languages, uh, can you kind of quantify or describe what your past, both back in Ireland and also the trip, the entry into America, what role does that play as you write about topics and books now? It's a great question. I mean, uh, you, you, I, I could say nothing and I could say everything. You know, uh, you know, on the surface, it seems like, you know, I, uh, those early years and the bicycle journey, which I've never really written about, uh, you know, means nothing to my literary life. But in fact, and in, in, in deep truth, it meant everything. And there, there are times I think that I haven't written about it precisely because if I wrote about it, I would lose it. Um, I'm still holding it close to me. I'm still holding all those stories of all those people that I met. And they, you know, they formed me. People would stop me and say, you know, where are you going? Uh, you know, and how many tires have you gone through? But really, after about two, three minutes, they would always say they would always start telling me their own story. Uh, and, 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 and sort of in a vicarious way, they were becoming novelists. They were like giving it to me. I was taking it inside me and then I was going down the road with it. I was bringing their stories elsewhere. Um, and so I think that the, those, those, those early years uh, were incredibly formative and, and even simple things like, um, you know, when I was in school and um, I was in a school that was very close to, 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 to my house. So I'd go home for, for lunch. Not all the boys would go home for lunch, but I'd sit with my mother for at least 20 minutes a day. She'd have the sandwiches ready. She'd have the tea ready. And I would sit with my mother for at least 20 minutes every day. And I didn't realize what a joy that was until years later. And 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 I think that she taught me a lot about uh, about life, about about women. I actually think you know writing about women is um, is such an extraordinary privilege. And I think they got a more complex emotional wardrobe than men have. Um, and I think part of that was because I I was able to sit and listen to my mom and just be with her for 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 a while. It sounds kind of I, I, idyllic, and I suppose it is. Colm, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for, 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 for you know, allowing me to, those, those memories to bubble up again. We don't always get a chance to think about those sort of uh, uh, formative years. It's really, uh, it's really nice to, 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 to return to them. And I love what you're doing. So thank you so much. Colm McCann. It's hard to quantify the passion his readers have for his work. One example? A teacher in Newtown, Connecticut, in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, searching for a way for students to deal with their grief, invited Colin McCann to the school to have a conversation with the students about his best-selling 2009 novel that was not about 9-11, but came to be connected to the grief after 9-11. Let the great world spin. 
McCann is also the co-creator of Narrative 4, an international organization that promotes the exchange of stories as a way to connect students to each other, to break down barriers, and shatter stereotypes. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13. This episode was produced and created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me too. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.